can feel myself rot. The pain of being dead. I don't seem to have much of any reasoning power. Seventeen seconds. Reanimation at seventeen seconds. The eyes open. Not dead? Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed a certificate. I saw them bury her. Look at the face. It's vacant with a hint of sadness. Infected with what? Rage. In the midst of a pandemic, we took a break. For Halloween, we're back from the dead. Blood and Black Rum Podcast is Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from Cultivation.com and I'm joined by my co-host Martin. How's it going? Uh, we're doing pretty well. We are uh, pretty deep into the October season now for our Halloween festival and we're... Uh, in our reanimated series, reanimated being the zombie films that we've been covering, uh, and uh, as a podcast, we're also reanimated. We're back from the dead after we took a long hiatus for the pandemic, and we have been discussing all things zombies. We've been talking about fast zombies, slow zombies, Romero zombies, uh, Italian zombies, yeah, comedy zombies uh, with the Return of the Living Dead, and Korean zombies. That's right, we've been all over the map too. And this time, we're going to talk about voodoo zombies. A little bit different. Not the traditional zombies that you you think of when you think about uh, Romero zombies or the uh, more contemporary zombies. We're talking about the, uh, the 1930s zombies uh, the, with the 1932 classic white zombie. The Bela Lugosi film. You mean the Rob Zombie film. Yeah. That was right? once yeah. Rob Zombie's band. The, the Rob Zombie band. We're just going to cover... All of the, the hits from Rob Zombie's band, White Zombie. It is uh, one of the earliest iterations that most people refer to when they think about zombie films. Um, and especially because it has Bela Lugosi. I mean, that's one of the big draws. Especially now, contemporarily, when you're thinking about uh, horror films, Bela Lugosi is a, you know, one of the big giants of, of uh, classic horror cinema. And... While he wasn't super appreciated um, back in in that period, he is now. And so the name alone draws people to White Zombie, uh, regardless of how they feel about the film as a whole. Um, Not like that. I always thought this was a universal film, and it's not. No, it isn't. Um, And, I mean, 
I think because you think it's a universal film simply because of the time frame. I mean, well, then it's got a lot of like the gothic, you know. Yeah, and th- and there were other films were... at the time that were doing that same thing that weren't universal. But you're you're right; it does feel a lot like a universal film in that respect, and it does have a lot of the um of of atmosphere to it that some of those films had that were doing it very well. I mean, you you have though you're you're in Haiti, you have like this very gothic castle that's situated, yeah. It's situated in Haiti. It's very, you know, kind of feels out of place. Um, it looks like Dracula's castle, but in Haiti. Um, so it it is it does feel like a universal film in some respects. So I can see where you would get that from. Um, with White Zombie, obviously we're not talking about zombies. Like, as we said, in the traditional sense, we're talking about... Um, they do call them the living dead, but they are um, zombies that have been given a special vial of liquid that gives them the premise of death so that they are basically put into coffins and, you know, entombed. And then they rise because Bela Lugosi has the special power to clasp his hands together with his with his big ring, you know, and hold them very, very tensely in front of the camera. That's also something I didn't know too. I've I've, I've seen before the, Bill, cl- him yeah, the clasping hands, clasping his hands, and you know, he didn't realize that it was from this. Yes, yes, that is a that is you know that is the the uh, the trumpet to the the zombie that says "Do my bidding." Um, is the telepath? Is he like like? I think we can imagine that there's some telepathic connection because there is that one moment too, where um, the one Butler character, silver great name. Not, yes. silver. he has not been, I, as far as I know, he has not been given the liquid mm. zombie formula and Bella Lugosi turns and stares at him. And there's this little glint in his mm. eye that causes him to basically collapse and have like a dizzy spell. Um, and so you can kind of imagine that there is some telepathy at work or something where he's, you know, he's doing it, uh, you know, telepathically commanding them to do something. Um, that's that's my understanding of of the the rules behind the film, but it doesn't really go into detail about what that what that rule is. Uh, you just know that give them a dose of that poison, clasp his hands, they do what he wants. Um. So and we'll get into the the whole element of ha- having those zombies and what that what those zombies mean within the context of the film and um there's a whole you know scenario that we'll get into about um zombies being slaves to his bidding um but first we can take a break before we get into all of that and talk about the beer that we have on the show today and uh Martin with a, went with another seasonal type of beer uh for today's show that uh, I'll let him talk about. Start it off. Did you hit the music? I did. Okay. I did. Good. So, um, to celebrate this nice fall weather, and by nice fall weather, I mean rainy, boggy, humid, mm-hmm. cold weather, got us a nice stout. And it's a stout from Dogfish Head, which we've had before on, on the podcast. Yep. A bunch of times. Uh I would say at this point, pretty prominent craft brewer. 
And they're not known for their stouts, they're mainly known for their IPAs. Um, but this one, I couldn't resist. It's a campfire stout, which they call campfire amplifier, with a nice Grateful Dead, you know, kind of style art. And it's a, a milk stout that's a graham cracker, s'mores, chocolatey, marshmallowy delight. Mm-hmm. Meant for sipping around a nice bonfire as we wind down these last few days of autumn before we roll into Winter's Embrace in two weeks here in good old upstate New York. Yep. Yep. Do you want me to go, do you want me to start first with how you I felt You usually, it, you, you're you the one to... that's, you're the one that always starts. It's, you know, it's the improper for me to. Yeah. So, the description is a milk stout brewed with graham crackers, cinnamon, marshmallows, with cocoa powder, and vanilla beans added. Um... And I think I get that to an extent. I do taste the the graham, the graham cracker part of it, and a vanilla aspect to it. Um, cinnamon is not really like super prominent in there. Um, I would say I would say not even there. Yeah, and I, did, I, I would never have expected it. And and, and chocolate as well is is uh, is low in the the taste profile. I, I don't get a whole lot of chocolate to it. Um, it is marshmallowy. Yes, it's marshmallowy and grammy. Um, and I think that that pretty much makes a s'more, right? That, that, that is, that's close to, uh, a s'more-like character. You, you might expect the chocolate, that's kind of hidden in this, but I think it's, it's a pretty good beer. It's very, um, very light for a stout. It, it do- doesn't have a very, um, uh, I guess thick mouthfeel to it. Very, very, it's kind of got a thinner mouthfeel and um it is pretty easy to drink surprisingly sometimes you get a stout and it's a sipper and this one i would not characterize as a sipper this is more of a you know this is a drinking beer and, and you can definitely session it it's about six percent you said six uh I think it's six and a half six yeah. and a half percent so it's not extremely strong but i think that the the um the thinness to it and the the uh yeah, six and a half. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think the thinness and the drinkability elevates this milk stout, and it's nice that it comes in a six pack as well, because you can have a few. You know, you don't have to have a four pack where you're like, hmm, I've had two, I better save the rest. It's got. I really like this a lot. It's got a nice graham crackery and marshmallowy taste. Um, I would say the cinnamon is non-existent. I don't get it at all. It does have like a nice, I would say more so than the chocolate. It has a nice little vanilla, like extract taste to it. I'd say from the malts, they are like a, like it's supposed to be like a hint of chocolate and a little bit of coffee. Nice, you know, dark roast as like any good stout is. But it's not that pronounced. However, with it being a milk stout, even though it's six and a half ABV in a stout, it's a milk stout. It's very creamy, like kind of got a creamy texture to it, which makes it easy to drink, very delightful. Mm. And I think that a milk stout lends itself to a s'more style stout. So, with all that being paired together, I really enjoy this. I would drink this all the time during the fall. It's a very good stout. Um, one of the best I've had in a while. And I'm not the biggest stout fan because usually, especially with a lot of. Uh, craft beers and try to 
lean more towards like these, you know, different fruity imperial stouts, which, you know, I'm not one for because I don't like the high alcohol, the alcohol, alcohol backed uh, taste to it on the end. But I really enjoy this. It's very good. It's got a, it's not probably, it's probably not the best s'more stout I've had because I've had others that are able to combine all the flavors together very well. But I say it does enough of it well to be something to try. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. I would I would definitely, if we were having a bonfire right now, gladly take one of these and sit back and enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think it's enjoyable, and I would recommend checking it out, especially for the fall season. Uh, those flavors pair well together, and I definitely would uh, would get it again and, and think it's pretty drinkable. You know, especially for a stout. On the mild side, you're not going to... This isn't one that's, uh, you know, one of those uh, 750 milliliter bottles where you can... It's a sipper only, like one of those Goose Island bourbons or something like that. This is uh, more on the drinkable side and and definitely uh, tasty and a little bit, you know, different for your stouts. I'm trying to remember this. S'mores Porter from Saranac. That was a porter, right? Yep. Okay. Yep, porter. Similar idea, though. Yeah. Now I can't really remember exactly what that one tasted like in comparison. That to this was a one, lot. Su- that was a lot sweeter. Yeah, I think you're I, right. Yeah, you um, more Grammy. Yeah, that had that definitely had a lot of Graham crack. Because I'm yeah. think I'm thinking of it. I couldn't remember if it was a porter or a stout, but I know they had it in the little um, for the fall season. They do the little moonshine jugs. Yeah, they actually here. have one still over there that I think still has some beer in it. Afraid to crack it back open <laughs> and see. It's that's like four or five years old. To be honest with you. So I'm afraid to crack that one open again. All right, let's get into the discussion about White Zombie. So it's from the 30s, so it's boring. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's from the 30s, so you can expect a 60-minute movie. It's about 69 minutes. You know, uh, it's old because uh, on the opening credits, it says for the cast, it says the players. Yes. And you like, get you the know, kind of uh, yeah, playbill. Yeah. You know, stage. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of style there. And uh, you don't have to wait for the end credits because there are no end credits. It's simply the end. So, you know, again, like we've said, we've brought, we've brought this up before, but man, what a, aren't we just missing that in Hollywood these days? Films, films that just. And like that. Yeah, you just... Just end, just end done. you know. The end. What? Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of... Uh, I feel like films now give you that, like... Um, Coda. Denouement. That, yeah, that... that you're, you're just... Okay, you're, you're winding down. And films of the 30s are like... The climax hits, and then... It's over. Bam! Yeah. Done. No falling action. It's just over. It's kind of interesting because Ima- it left- Ima- Ima- I say, imagine Batman v Superman, and it just ends. Yeah. With Superman's dead. It- Not the thirty minutes after the fact of Superman being dead. Yeah, it- it's kind of interesting because it left the the audience to just basically reconcile. And of course, most of these films ended with more of a humorous uh, perspective. Like after all is said and done with the horror, even White Zombie is one of them, where it ends with a joke. Where a man asks for another match, which has been the running joke of the film. These films tended to end with humor. So it's not like you were being smacked with a serious theme at the end of the film. You were um, 
Gotta walk away. It was kind of wrapped up very quickly into a bow. You're happy with the the ending. It's happily ever after. And you you're given that one final joke to cut the cut the tension and end the film. Um It it is kind of interesting though how we've we've uh evolved from there. Um I I think it would have been interesting if there was like a very tragic ending. And it just ended. And the audience was left to reconcile with it. Just like, what, what just happened? That was awful. <laughs> that, that was a horrible, sad story. And you were just left to reconcile it. Well, you can't do that during the height of the Depression. Yeah, right. You, you, wanted, some, you wanted to take away <laughs> you, some humor in your... You need a little levity during those film. Hoover years. Yeah. So, White Zombie, um, it is a... Technically, I guess you would call it a voodoo film. And it's not extremely um sensitive with its themes of race um as evidenced from the opening of the film um you 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 can tell right away that this film is not going to be particularly um you know nuanced in its discussions but at the same time it does bring up some interesting ideas about slavery about the uh white complex and about um almost capitalism as well because there are some ideas of of um slavery of the man that I think you're stretching that a little Well, far. I'm not though because there is an entire scene I th- I, devoted I, th- I think that's a little, you know, you're But there's an entire scene devoted to uh but who are murder Lejean, which is uh Bella Lugosi's yeah. name and in his, the film. Yeah, his, his name is Murder in the film great name do you you know what you're like you know what i'm gonna be friends with murder (laughs) what did his parents see in him that's like you know i named my son murder i think it's a nickname but still why not manslaughter you know you know what murder's gonna come over we're gonna have some fun he's gonna bring his weird cackling uh vulture and we're just gonna you know we're gonna hang out we're gonna have some have some wine and Sniff the flowers yeah. and no, I th- I think I think you're reading a little too much into the subtext and giving it a modern day uh, layer because yes, as there are these like you know poor Haitians and the sugar mill yeah running it around who are protagonists. Oh, I know. Yeah, the yuppies of the twenties and thirties, the I... flappers of the flappers, and not rolling only that. in money. But what where is, do we go for? What is the what is the savior? But a white man that comes in. But they're all they're all white mm-hmm. outside of the poor Haitians. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, but again, like I said, they're all rich. They're all endowed with money. They're all. Yeah. I, I think that like you, sir, Yeah, I mean, do I think that the intentionality of the um, the slave workers in the sugar mill, you know stems from what the director victor halperin wanted maybe not it's not like we're working with a extremely transgressive film here uh where it's saying a lot about how black people are treated um we're not getting that we're getting a very um white privileged storyline where a white man is a savior a white woman is the absolute end-all, be-all obsession. And in between that, you got, you know, black Haitian slaves who are basically the enemies in this film. 
and two white rich guys who are vying for the affections of this white woman. Um, so yeah, it's not extremely like progressive. It's not like we can um, say that in 1932 they were really going for something outside of uh, cultural scope. But now looking at it, you can kind of say, wow, if they had gone a little bit further, they might have had an interesting idea there. Um, and I haven't looked up what critics have really said about White Zombie as a as a feature film um, in the in the like contextual uh, criticism of it. I assume that some of them would be um, a little bit more um, lenient of its themes and try to find some of those ideas of, uh, you know, slavery and capitalism and things like that. Um, I agree with you though, that while you can see that in the film, it's not really doing no. a good job of, no. of selling. I, the, I don't, like the I, said, I don't think it was an idea in their head. Honestly, if you wanted to make the, progressive version of white zombie in 2020 it would be like you know instead of a sugar mill it's a factory mm. bella lugosi is like your uh your foreman of the factory and you have different people from different walks of life well i think the are, film that you're thinking of is the mangler yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> the mangler and, yeah of- and that you know and then how the labor itself is what turns them into zombies. Yeah. You know, and that would be like the critique of like wage slavery. That would be like the modern 2020, yeah. like Marxist film to make. But yep. I don't think in this, they have a fucking, I, it, I mean, to be honest with you, it doesn't even look like that many of them are even black faced. There's um, like a couple of them that are, but I, yeah, I mean, at least, from what it looked so i mean like if they, hey if they hired you know it's couple. actually difficult because you don't get a lot of um actual um close-ups of the zombies there's that one scene where bella lugosi's basically going over yeah this guy yeah uh and this guy was a um you know uh, prime someone minister, important, yeah. and he was he was a yeah. minister of the interior and uh but you don't really get a lot of close-ups yeah. of the zombies except in the sugar mill yeah. and in that scenario they are i think they are pretty much you know just black extras haitian extras that they had i doubt they were haitian it, maybe not but but they <laughs> highly were doubt extras. in 1931 hollywood they were rolling out <laughs> the haitian immigrants to come in for, yeah yeah to be you know extras come on in but um but yeah so i mean i i like i said i i the, per, the progressive bona fides of this i you're reaching. Yeah. You're reaching on that. But but you're right. The Mangler would be like a more modern, yeah, you know. It is. Yeah. It's just definitely the, uh, the, the, the whole factory element. But I, I think that's interesting that actually the zombies of White Zombie kind of uh, are not heavily populated in the film. It's not like the zombies are cropping up all the time. Um, the main conceit really is um, let's get Madeline – as a zombie, and so all that... I, and all I can think of the entire time is the fucking uh, French cartoon. Yeah, right there, yeah. I'm Madeline. Like, Madeline. Let, the, the man could see is, we both want Madeline, and actually three, three white men yeah. want Madeline, and so there's that whole vying for Madeline, 
uh, that that appears and there's a like a love quadrangle that happens because of it. And um, I do think that interestingly, Madeline is while she doesn't have a lot of agency within the film, she's Barbara. Well, but kind of intentionally throughout most of the film. No, I know, but I can see after watching this thing, so yeah. that's why Barbara's used. But, like, while she doesn't have a lot of agency towards, like, the middle to the end of the film because she's been turned into this zombie, uh, at the beginning of the film, I've got to give the film credit for having her speak out against uh, this rich white guy, um, uh, Beaumont, who has taken a shine to her, basically seeing her one time uh, coming over on the boat from Haiti for hate to Haiti and has tried to intervene in her marriage plans with another man. And so this guy's nice and rich. Her husband is not like, I mean, I would say that he's poor, but he's not as rich. He shows up in a nice white linen suit. Yeah, but she does talk about how he needs like Beaumont to help with uh, him becoming, you know, getting a job. And so he's not, like, super rich, even though, by all accounts, he is fairly well off. But you have to give the film credit for that scene where she's coming down the stairs uh, in her wedding dress with Beaumont. He's escorting her like a father figure would and is basically saying sweet nothings in her ear. (laughs) I'd give you the sun and the moon. Exactly. I'd give you anything you want. And she's like, don't make – don't – don't ruin this. Don't don't ruin this moment. Don't ruin the moment that we had. Why would you be like, oh, I need someone to walk me down? You that man I just met, who was cl- clearly smitten with me. <laughs> yeah, I do. Let's go the incel route here and say that's a plot that you know to put him, you know, right to get him in a bad position. Yeah, put him in a bad position yeah. because you know, she knows that she he's, he's smitten he's, with yeah. her, but she and she's not interested, but she likes the attention. And I, but I mean, I do like <laughs> the idea that she tells him off. She says, "You know what? I'm not interested, dad. I love my Neil. future husband, Neil. <laughs> Neil, and I don't want any part of this. So I do give that the film credit for that to give the woman agency at the same time, like throughout the month. Couldn't have silver bring her down. Yeah. Right. Or anything. Yeah. Throughout the rest of the film, she's not given any agency because she's a zombie. And also there's a scene where she gets the vapors. Like you said, (laughs) like she gets, you know, gets the vapors hysterical and passes out in Neil's arms. Um, Well, we get to see Bella Lugosi's eyes. That's right. His extreme close-up of his eyebrows, eyebrows, which have gone creeping, creeping away from his head. (laughs) You know, they're 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 going to be permanent residents of the castle pretty soon. In the in the corners, like spiders, caterpillars just roaming around. So one criticism of White Zombie that I also have is the acting, which um, has been. Uh, Dreadfully hammy. Exactly. Dreadfully 30s. Hammy. And also, um, what you could kind of uh, chalk it up to in some ways is that the film does a lot better job of being a silent movie rather than a talkie. Because the entire scenario towards the end of the film where um, – With the hand clasping. With the hand clasping, with, um, with uh, Madeline – 
basically doing Bella Lugosi's bidding, and she's carrying the knife and going and, and is is uh, being urged to to murder Neil, and then dropping it and then running off. That scene is all um, just orchestral music it's, and i think that's probably one of the best scenes of the movie it's shot like it's not meant to have sound exactly it's like a it's like a silent movie and i think that is where the film really succeeds because it has a pacing to it and it has the um the very good facial expressions of um madeline uh played by madge bellamy to carry the film whereas some of the acting in this movie is really just not very good. Um, while I would say, yes, Bela Lugosi is a classic of horror cinema, he's not very good in white uh, as an actor in White Zombie. He's no, very his hammy. English is pretty shitty in this, too. It, he's very, it's very, br- it's very, I, w- I wouldn't even say so much hammy. His English in this compared to, film, obviously, films later on, like Dracula and such, it's still kind of broken. I don't know if that was the script itself or... I mean, or I just, what? But he like half the lines he's speaking is, is uh, yeah, you know, very broken. I I would definitely not consider his his, finest his portrayal in this film to be that great compared to some of his other uh, other moments. And um, I mean, I think his presence alone is what is supposed to do it. You have the you know he has the staunch figure of someone who would be doing this sort of evil and the eyebrows and the face and just the whole visage is what is supposed to do it for you. And um, I think that had this not had as much dialogue, had this been sort of a silent film, you, you would have gotten that uh, more sinister tone from it uh, without needing the dialogue because a lot of it is hammy and you can kind of think of it in a lot of ways like Nosferatu where um, that is effective because it's quiet. Exactly. Because you don't have the dialogue and you only have the creeping dread of Nosferatu and the orchestral score to, to, um, to score it. And I think that's the same idea in white zombie. We really don't need the, the whole dialogue because the dialogue is kind of also wasted. There's not a lot of it that really makes a difference to the plot. You get the gist of the plot whether you have the dialogue or not. Um, so, I, I mean, you can you can definitely see the silent aspect of this movie at play, especially in that final, those final moments of the film uh, when it's leading up to the climax. I did find that um, the zombies towards the end of the film, um, they run into that issue of um, being, like, extremely stupid. Right, because they're never really a threat. They're always more so like an annoyance. And not only that, they only show up like twice. So yeah. it's like the whole zombie idea. There's some good ideas, but because they're so limited in their use, it's uh, kind of like, all right. Yeah, that, that final scene where um, Neil is on the precipice just standing there and the zombies are coming towards him. And he's basically going full out. Uh, I'm gonna box you. Bare basically, yeah. yeah. How about you? Yeah. You know, there's five of them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna box you out. And then he gets kind of trapped on the precipice. And there's a moment where you're like, is he just gonna fall off? 
I mean, is he going to try anything else besides just standing there? And then he does duck under. Well, because you have the doctor be like, run! Yeah. And he ducks just <laughs> quickly. He, like, just skitters about, like, yeah. underneath them. And then they all just, ah! Yeah, you, right do, you the- do have that. And, and so, you know, there's not much that the zombies do in this movie that is really tense or affecting. It's more so Bela Lugosi that has that um, impact. And, and again, it's more so just his presence rather than anything that he specifically says. Um, and then you have Beaumont who is kind of, again, you could consider him a villain because he's the one that sets us all in motion. He's the one that just has to have Madeline and he'll do any, basically any cost to, to have her. And so he's the one that decides that he's going to poison her and, and turn her into a zombie. Um, he does have redemption in the fact that as soon as she's a zombie, he's like, well, this doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. She's soulless. There's nothing she's, to her. There's the, there's the dead eye stare yeah. that, uh, you know. It was her soul and her fire I loved that I, I knew for two minutes. I think it's um, it's interesting that the film, and it makes sense for 1932, but the film just um is completely careful to make sure that there is no sexual connotation whatsoever in spite of the fact that you have uh the risque uh madeline and her boxer jorts and bra you know <laughs> changing out for yeah. into her wedding dress which is pretty risque especially considering the 30s, this, yeah. this woman is uh a damsel about to be married and we're seeing her prior to her wedding in her skivvies so that is a little risque but for the the rest of the film this it, it is like entirely sexless and that is an, a concept that's really interesting because the whole idea of her being a zombie to effectively make her romance blossom with Beaumont is sexual there's a whole lot to say about that that you're basically date raping this woman uh for a long period of time there's a whole lot to say about the sexual connotations of that and the film goes zero percent into that uh it just completely ignores the whole element of you know a woman that has no uh thought process or you know or or ability to say no (laughs) There's just nothing to it in that sense. That's what Beaumont liked. The, her fire to say no. That's right. Now that she's just a zombie, he's like, oh, it doesn't, never mind. It's, uh, I, I liked it better it. when she was outspoken. Yeah. It doesn't do anything for me with her objecting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else did we talk about? Um, the score is pretty bombastic. And I think that works again, like in its favor, because it's certainly um, one of those films that that does require some score behind it, or else the quiet moments really take over. And uh, I mean, it's not really used until the end either. Yeah, it's yeah, a pretty true. it's pretty quiet up until like the last act. Yep. Yeah, there's a uh, the last act really throws in. A lot of that. that, And that's during that whole, like, silent-esque scene of really increasing the volume of the score and bringing it to the forefront 
um, and allowing it to shine. And I think that's probably, again, why that scene is so striking because it does have the um, the crescendo of the, the, the score to to carry it forward. Um, let's see what else we got. What do you think of like the, as I said, because I was kind of shocked that this is not a universal film of that Gothic, uh, setting and architecture and, uh, set pieces that they have throughout the film. You have the, you know, graveyard, the cliffside castle and Haiti. Uh, Uh, I, I definitely think that the atmosphere, the Gothic atmosphere is, is pretty well done here. Um, there are quite a few cinematography moments that stand out. Um, there's that one scene where uh, Lugosi and the rest of his crew, the zombie crew, are coming down the um, mausoleum stairs. And we're actually within the the uh, crypt inside where um, Madeline's body is in the coffin. So we're seeing like the perspective of behind her coffin – and uh, in the forefront, Lugosi coming down the stairs to get it. It's an interesting uh, shot, this, you know, decision for them um, because it, they could have just as easily shot them from a side perspective and or something. Grabbing the damn thing. Exactly. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting idea to shoot from there. Um, that we see a lot more now. Like if you think about Vince Gilligan in um, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad and how many perspective shots that he has of being in weird places. Um, it's kind of like that was an early precursor to the weird perspectives that you get now. And, and that was, you know, kind of morbid in the sense that we're in the crypt with her. Um, another Listen, one, you can have them in the crypt taking her body. Can't have them kissing. That's right. That's right. Another one that was interesting was the um the uh like split screen fade that they do uh between Madeline who's on the like the ramparts of the castle uh, You're on the just balcony. breaking out all That's the right. big words today ramparts That's right. precipice Yeah. I love it. Yeah, she's up she's up on the balcony of the castle yeah. and you have the <laughs> split screen diagonally and then you have uh Neil, who's sleeping down on the cliffside of the castle, and that is kind of an interesting parallel of 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 love. You know, you have uh, she's up there and he's down here, and that kind of spurs him on to go to go to the castle. I it's uh, not really well defined, but does he see her? Like, is it possible from our perspective? The castle's way off in the distance. But then he makes his way to it and doesn't seem like it's that far away. So um, I thought it was an interesting mm-hmm. shot that maybe doesn't make sense within the the realism of the film. Uh, let me just say, Neil is a god-awful protagonist. <laughs> He's milk toast. He especially, does... especially if you're you know looking for a manly man. Yeah, right. He yeah. gets the vapors like 12 different he's, times yeah, throughout the not. film as he's trying to rescue Matt. Like that scene you're describing, it's not him like looking on the shore up at the castle like, I'm going to find my woman. Yeah. It's him like, oh, and he like faints and he's, he's like. Been, and, yeah, he's collapsed. And the Like for the fourth time, the doctor's like, don't worry, we're almost <laughs> there, you know. The doctor's like, oh, you know what? <laughs> I'll I'm, go. I'm 70 years old, old, but I'll, I'll go and find yeah, him. Yeah, I'll make the hike. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. You know. 
You're, you're the, right. The, he's the, as a protagonist, he's not very, um, you know, compelling. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but he's not like in the film most of the time because the trade-off is really Lugosi and uh, the Beaumont character. He's not like an equal, like as if you were what to say watch like if it was. I don't know if. I don't think Hammer did do a white zombie, but if Hammer were to do a film, you could have your compelling Christopher Lee and your Peter Cushing. Right. Here you got. You don't get You that. got Bella. You got nobody. Yeah. You got uh, Milk Toast is perfectly the, w- the way to describe it. Yeah. As he walks in his nice white linen suit <laughs> as he's about to get married. And then after that, he's just getting the vapors every way, you know, trying to figure out after he gets drunk and like. And Sully's, you know, like, oh, you know, sulks about, about, you know, like, oh, no, she's dead. It or is whatever. the perfect perspective of Chad versus the virgin. You know, the, <laughs> the Chad is just taking her away. And the virgin is like, she's gone. My lady. Yeah. And, and, and by, by basically by accident succeeds. I know. We don't see the doctor, like, after he climbs the castle. We don't see him for, like, another 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, at the end, he just shows up and, like, boop. Yeah. Bob's Bella on the head and, like, you got a match? Yeah. They that's, didn't. That's they, basically it. Yeah. Just, <laughs> that's, all they, that's all they needed. I do like how Bella's yeeted off the side of the cliff. <laughs> there's that whole moment where he's just thrown off and there's a stock footage of a man falling. And then, that's it. Just this man stuffed with straw. Climaxes back then were great. Cer- certainly uh, <laughs> a lot less climactic than they are now. Um, so this, like, yeah. not, I say, not only that too, as Neil gets his his dander up to go into the castle, he passes out on the <laughs> bench. Like, why did he pass out on the bench? Yeah. Is he tired? Is he a diabetic? Is his like blood sugar <laughs> yeah, low? Like, what's the matter with Neil? No, I just got up to the close to like where, you know, Bella and uh, his lady friend is. He's just like, oh, well, you gotta take a nap. You know what it is? It's just high altitude. <laughs> My lungs aren't conditioned <laughs> for this altitude. Yeah, that is funny. He's yeah. just definitely not your... Uh, Can't breathe this free Haitian air. Just yeah. Which, that uh, is uh, interesting, too, that this film... I, again, I have to come back to the whole castle scenario of a castle just huh. being perched. randomly in somewhere in Haiti. Just perched on a cliff, Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's just, it's just fun. He's he is god awful. Yeah, it, it's interesting protagonist for sure. Uh, it's just, and again, the film is interesting in the way that it, um, it it like loses the protagonist for a while. I I actually forgot for a little while he was even in the film. Uh, yeah, in the film and coming to the rescue because there's a long period of time where it's just, um. Lugosi Bo- in the Beaumont, castle, yeah. yeah, and Beaumont in the castle. And you forget about the doctor too, because yeah, you forget about them. And I'm then they showed the whole scene where they're riding in on their horses. I'm like, who are who are these people? Oh yeah, it's the you know it's the guy that was going to be married to Madeline. You totally forget about them for a little while. So it's, um, you know, it's weird that they they took so long in between showing the protagonist, who's you know who you're supposed to be rooting for. What do, do you, you think of the? The whole voodoo doll bit. Yeah, that is, you know, 
I think it's weird because there are a lot of different elements to this film's voodoo. It doesn't make sense. There's no really rhyme or reason. No. To it. It's kind of like they took the greatest hits of like voodoo and yeah. like yeah. Okay. There's, we mentioned the glint in the eye, which seems to have nothing to do with him being um, poisoning. You know, with that with that serum. Um, and you would then have that, the, the voodoo doll, which is, seems to be like another element of the telepathicness. Like, is that the way that he ultimately is able to get people to become a zombie? And then the other ways are just like how he leads them. Um, there's no rule to it. It doesn't, and we don't ever get to see him do that to anyone else. So, you know, we, I like, I do like him burning the wax, you know, the wax voodoo doll under the candlelight. Yeah. Of the streetlight because it's just the gothic, you know. Yeah, it's a good old timey image because, like, you know. Yeah. You know, you couldn't do that today. But at the same time, it's like, so is that voodoo doll tied to her? Did he make it before he, you know, had her poisoned? You know, there's no real rules because then the second voodoo doll that he's making is for Beaumont. And he's just sitting there carving away, and he's just looking at it like, eh. yeah, right. And he's like, "You get to suffer and feel this." And it's like, well, "What? What's he doing? You're not even doing anything to the voodoo doll. You're still sculpting it, right?" Yeah. So it's, it's, there's the rules. There isn't really a rule to it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It just seems off, and and like there's the telepathicness to it, and the glint in the eye is really the one that seems to um, throw everything off. Like it just doesn't make sense with the rest of it. We don't see that he has a voodoo doll for that yeah. guy. So, you know, it, it. I think it's an interesting scene. It would have been nice to have it go through a little bit more detail um, or see it happen m- multiple times. Uh, so, that or, you know, even if we see an, him making another zombie besides Beaumont, because Beaumont doesn't really even fit into that scenario either. Like, why is he burning uh, Madeline's voodoo doll, but he doesn't do that to Beaumont? It just... Shouldn't that kill her? You know, how does that just yeah. make her faint? Yeah. Right. Well, apparently when she faints, she dies. We don't really mm-hmm. know how. It's all chalked up to like the 30s of like, she died of fright. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just the shock. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's inconsistent. So it is interesting how that, that works. I, I don't. It, it It's a cool idea. I just wish that they had fleshed it out a little bit more. Other than that, that's pretty much all I've got for White Zombie. Um, it's you know it's a short film at sixty nine minutes, so like like many of the the films of the thirties, it's really in and out. Um, got a nice abrupt ending to it. And uh, speaking of, how would you like that? Our protagonist and our heroine are just about to kiss, and then then you get the you got a light. <laughs> yeah, it's just the the commonality of those films of ending on. Ending on a humorous note, and again, another element of like the film's sexlessness. There's just no like besides that one scene of having her in her in her underwear. You get nothing else from it. All right, I just think it's funny because they're about to kiss, and he's like sitting there with this pipe, and he's like, hey, "Got a match?" Always <laughs> asking for a match. I just bopped a man on the head. <laughs> yeah, right. You did. That's- with no sound effect either. I know. What do you hit him with? I don't know. It was a rolled up what? What it was like it? Like a high heel. Like a scroll? Like, you know. Maybe. Man, you just, uh, just took a random thing like, pop. Yeah, it looked like a high heel or something to me. So. <laughs> just, 
while I'm also a drag queen. Don't tell my. But I don't know. It's, it, I, it's just funny. It's, uh, it's funny. So on a scale of um, zero to ten, stringed up vultures. Oh, that by the way, too. Speaking of, um, I wonder if this is the film that kind of gave, like, you know, how you'd see, like, in later horror films and anime and other things of like the bird that kind of screams, you know, like human. Mm. I wonder if this is the film that uh, originated that. Because mm. it's a trope I've seen. Like, you know, I was actually just watching Avatar The Last Airbender. And I was watching swamp, the Swamp episode from book two when they're going to the Earth Kingdom. And they go to the swamp. One of the birds they run to screams like a freaking human. Like, ah! Yeah, that, and they you make know. a big deal about that one. Yes. Yeah. With, with that bird screaming. So, I mean, I wonder if this film kind of created the trope of that. You know, mm. the yeah. bird that, you know, screams like a person. Yeah. Because uh, and you can see that nice you know string to it. Yeah, <laughs> they've got it like tied down just so it can't like go anywhere. Apparently, so on a scale of zero to ten, stringed stringed up vultures. What would you give this film? Give it a five and a half. It's eh. I can see how it's influenced other things, but um, and I like to be. I usually like to sit, you know try to grade things on a. Uh, Contextual scale, mm-hmm. but um, even though it's like only sixty-five minutes long, it's a pretty dull, boring film overall. Um, outside of Bella Lugosi and his like facial expressions, not a lot going on in this film. I like the, I do like kind of like when we were talking about a zombie when we reviewed that. I do like the voodoo zombie idea. I think it's an interesting take, especially seeing as. My dumbass has grown up throughout my life, just knowing like kind of like Romero style zombies. So I like the idea of it a lot. Um, I just think it could be done a lot more interesting and better. There's a, there's a lot of things you could do with it to make it more interesting. And I get that it's one of the originators, so it's probably not going to be too deep. But even still, it's just there's not that much really here as a film. Um. And it's definitely something I would say has not aged well. It probably would, as you said, be better if it was a silent film overall because you could make it feel quicker paced, you know, due to it being more like action facial expression oriented. But they decided to make three quarters of it like a talkie and then the last, you know, quarter a silent film. So it's kind of got like two different vibes in it. So, yeah, I mean, I get how people could like it and see it as this great inspiration, but for me in 2020, even trying to grade it on a curve of being contextual, I still think like a five and a half. It's like, yeah, yeah. I'd say watch it, but you know, I would I would never go out of my way to watch this again. Yeah, I think um, I would probably give it a six. I've seen it once before, and I have many of the same feelings about it that I did then. You know, it's it's definitely a slower film, even at sixty nine minutes, and it's uh, it's got its fair share of uh, you know moments that don't really have much going on. And you're right the 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 whole element of the theme doesn't really come through very much. Um, you know, it's more about the romance than anything else. Um, and possibly the slavery context is, um, you know, more of an accident than anything else that we're, that we can kind of read into now. I don't think it's Bela Lugosi's best film at all. 
and um, I I do think that it lacks some of the um, the zombie elements to really you know make it a zombie film. While we while they call it the the first zombie film, I think it lacks a lot of zombie elements to it to give it that distinction. Um, there's not a lot of zombie happenings in it. And uh, that's not always a bad thing. Like the drama can be, um, you know, the more important element to the film. But in this case, I don't think it's there. Um, and it's interesting too, that all of the characters tend to be white and rich. And, and uh, our perspective of that is that you know, basically they're all vying for the affection of one white woman. Um, I do think it's important to give this film a watch, especially considering uh, its sequel is way more dreadful, Revolt of the Zombies. Um, this one at least has some character to it. Um, so I, I think it's important to give this a watch uh, just for historical purposes to see, you know, the element of the zombie in its prime and, uh, you know, when it first originated and, you know, obviously again to just experience uh, one of a horror classic film um but i don't think that it is particularly the best uh example of early classic horror all right so that does it for white zombie and i believe we have pretty yeah we have come to the end of our reanimated series we have one more left for next week we're doing we thought it would be appropriate after we've done all of the other examples of zombie films to take a look at the pretty much the ultimate parody of zombie films. The greatest film of all time. <laughs> yeah. Shaun of the Dead. So we are... Uh, we'll have to make, like, for the picture, instead of, like, having a Shaun of the Dead, we'll have to have, like, a picture of us doing, like, the go to the Winchester and everything <laughs> will be fun. You yeah. Know, wait for this to blow over. Yeah. Picture of us holding a nice pint up. Yeah, we thought we thought it would be appropriate to do that, um, just to you know to wrap things up in a nice little bow and and go the parody route and and take a look at all of the elements that Shaun of the Dead is is uh, taking from other films about zombies uh, and and you know and if you're the millennial of our age, it should be a film well within your heart. That's right. That's right. Because if not, Lord knows at our high school. Before, remember, children, before memes were a thing, uh, it was four straight years of you got right on you and uh, Anchorman quotes. Yeah, it was it was uh, quoted all the time. So it was a very, very big film in, of the time. So we hope to, to see you back for our Shaun of the Dead episode. And we hope that you enjoyed our, our discussion about White Zombie and not you're not mad about us not appreciating classic films enough. Listen, we're not fucking Fangoria. Okay? That's right. Yeah. All right. This yep. isn't the high art, you know, <laughs> horror podcast. That's, that's right. Yes. Um, you're lucky we did Train to Busan. True. <laughs> so uh, we will be back next week. You can catch us on iTunes, um, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, pretty much any podcasting app. We're on it. So check us out on there. Leave us a nice review and subscribe. And we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash blood and black rum. We are on Twitter at blood and black rum. 
And we have an email at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com where you can write to us, let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like, what you want to hear us cover. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast where you can donate to us. Anything you can donate is super helpful, helps us keep the podcast going, so we really appreciate that. Uh, we will catch you back next time for our final reanimated uh, show and just before Halloween. And uh, hopefully your Halloween season is going really well. Take care and happy birthday to me. That's right. Happy birthday to Martin.